You're listening to the podcast of Anthem Church in Columbia, Missouri. For more information, visit us online at anthemcolumbia.com. Well, good morning, Anthem Church. Luke said my name's uh, Stan Hike. Good to be on staff here as one of the pastors. If you have your Bibles, you can open them up to the book of Jude. If you're using like the, instead of like the Bible app, you know, if you're using the paper Bible, it is like in the back, right? There's only one more book behind it. So towards the very end, we're going to be in the book of Jude. We're doing a three-week study in Jude. And so um, I get this week and uh, be talking about that we're in a fight and figuring out whose team we're on. Next week, Todd's teaching on who we're actually fighting. And then Luke kind of closes out the series on how to fight. So we're in the book of Jude this morning. And, uh, and again, what I'm talking about today, just quick summary, is understanding that we're in a fight and whose team we're on. That's important information if you ever find yourself in a fight. You want to know that you're in one, and then you want to know whose team you're on in a fight. Now, I don't know, this might come as a surprise to some of you, but uh, I've actually never been in a fight. I don't know if that's a disappointment that your pastor hasn't scuffled, but I just, I, uh, I've never been in a fight, but I have been punched before. The last time I recall getting hit was uh, at the, the county fair, about this time of year, probably like 20 years ago. And how this all goes down is I remember right where I was at the fair, standing outside the goat barn, and uh, my buddy, uh, Travis Ledvina, comes and he's kind of like walking with this girl. And as, you know, a 12-year-old kid, I think I said something to the fact of, ooh. And he walked over to me by the goat barn and proceeded to punch me in the face and then walk away. That's the last time. Like, I was remotely close to getting in a fight. And, uh, and so, um, you know, not the most, uh, I guess, versed in how fights go. But I do know this, that if I find myself in a fight, I want to know that I'm in one. And I want to know whose team I'm on if we're throwing down. And so we're going to learn today that we are in kind of a battle. There's one going on around us, and we're going to talk about um, the teams that are there. And so, um, and I guess just by way of housekeeping, it's exciting. So welcome to Anthem Church. This is one of your first weeks. And before we dive into the book of Jude, just want to pause and say, north of us, the church that sent us, uh, Candeo Church, they're actually turning four years old here in a couple weeks. And today they actually... Um, Probably about this time, they are opening the doors to a brand new building that God kind of gave them, 50,000 square foot building, and other churches like, here, why don't you just take our building, and we'll take your warehouse, and they're like, okay, that works great, and, uh, and so just want to praise God for that, and want to pray for our time in the Word together, and so God, we do, we thank you for how you uh, richly provided through Jesus, and it's been fun to sing about that this morning, and thank you for providing for Candeo Church. Just pray for their first service in that new building. And Lord, just pray for us that you would teach us from your word and uh, you would help us um, know whose team we're on and, uh, and the reality of that this morning. And so teach us from your word. And we just pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So we're in the book of Jude. Here we are, short little book, 25 verses, and uh, we're going to cover four of them today. And so it starts out in Jude, uh, verse one, Jude a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. So we're going to stop there. The first two verses, we see that Jude refers to himself as a servant of Jesus Christ 
And then he makes a reference to his brother James. And I find that interesting because who was James's brothers? And we, we read in, in Matthew that James had a few brothers, Jude being one of them, Joseph, uh, Joseph Jr. rather, Simon, and uh, there's one other brother, Jesus. <laughs> like, do you, you understand that? That Jude would have been the brother or half-brother, depending on how you want to look at, at Jesus. And, and his reference in this opening line is like, I'm a servant of Jesus Christ, and, and James is my brother. Like, really? Like, that's the brother you picked to be like, you know, like, James. Maybe Jesus would have probably uh, been a better one, but why? I'm not sure. But, but again, this is, this is new because I grew up in a church that would have disagreed with this. But here we are. Let's, Matthew, we have this for the screen. And we learned in Matthew 13, this is right out of Scripture, that when Jesus finished these parables, he went away. And in verse uh, 54, and coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, where did this man get this uh, wisdom and these mighty works? Is not uh, this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother Mary? Are not his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? See, uh, Jude's apparently going by a different name now because Judas kind of wrecked that one for him. But there's Jude, there's our author right there. And you've got the brothers and is not all our sisters here with us. Where did this man get all these things? And they took offense to him. Again, th- we want to understand who's writing this. Is Jude. Jude would have shared a household with Jesus, would have grown up in that household. And again, you can, can you imagine having Jesus as your brother? Like, that would have been hard. And, 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 but nonetheless, here they are, these brothers. And now Jude is writing this. And he identifies himself, not as a brother or a half-brother or how you want to look at that, but as a servant of Jesus Christ. That's our author. And like Luke said last week, Christ isn't like the last name of the family. That's a reference and a term to the Messiah, the chosen one. And so when Jude is acknowledging that Jesus is Messiah, is Savior, is Lord, Jude recognizes that he was sent to earth in the flesh, lived a perfect life, yet was crucified at the hands of the Romans for Judas betraying him. But yet Jesus was buried in a tomb and then rose from the dead, appeared to 500 plus witnesses, commissioned the disciples to go and make disciples. And he's coming back one day to establish a new heavens and new earth. And Judas saying, I'm a servant of Jesus. Jesus was and is the son of God and Jesus was the savior of all mankind. And what you see here right away is he was Jude's savior as well. Thus the reference. And I love how kind of 2 Corinthians alludes to this, that a servant of Christ is really nearer than a mere brother in the flesh. He could have said, yeah, I grew up with Jesus, that we, we, but that, that servant of him is a closer title than even brother. And so Jude is a believer and a follower of Jesus Christ. And he writes this letter, and who's he say right away who he's writing this to? He's saying he's writing it to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus. And he highlights these two things. He's writing to Christians, those who are on the Jesus team, and he references a couple things. He said, those that are called and kept, and it's it's subtle, you can read it in passing, but I think there's a lot of meat there. This idea that, that those 
of us who identify with Jesus have been called by God. Luke kind of referenced Ephesians 2, but Ephesians 2 goes on after that to say in verses 8 and 9, for it is by grace that you've been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. It is a gift from God, not by works so that anyone can boast. What that means is those that identify with Jesus, that would say he is my savior, what Judas references here is, is it is God that has called us. It's not by your works. It's not because you were a great person or that you were deserving of it. God was merciful, and he's the one that called you. In fact, it goes on in Romans. Paul tells the Romans uh, in, in verse 18, um, he, he references this. He says earlier in 16, it says, it does not depend on human will or on the exertion, but on God who has mercy. And he references Pharaoh whose heart was hardened. In verse 18, he says, so then he, being God, has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. To which you're thinking, well, that doesn't seem that fun. Paul addresses that. Well, then how will you say to me, then how does he still find fault? For who can resist God's will? The response, who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? He goes on to say, doesn't the potter have the right to, to take the same lump of clay and make some for noble purposes and some for not? This idea, guys, that, that we are called. It doesn't depend on our efforts, but rather on God's mercy. And this idea that if, if God's the one that called us, if God's the one that pursued us and softened our hearts, then he's gonna keep us. But let me hear you say in that same breath where he says in Romans 9, hey, it doesn't depend on your effort. It's, it's God who's merciful. So if you're going to come to him and you're going to repent, it's God doing that. But in the very next chapter, he said, now, let me make it clear. You do need to confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you will be saved. There is a, a personal responsibility we have to respond to that call. But make no mistake, Scripture is clear that God is the one who is calling us. And this is important. I, I know I'm kind of picking on some minutia, but I'm telling you, it's going to come in throughout the rest of this kind of letter, how important it is that you understand God called us, that God, it, it originated with God doing a work in our heart. And therefore, if God's the one who called us, he refers to us as those that are kept in Jesus. If he started it, he's going to see it through and finish it. Backed up throughout scripture, and you see in John chapter 10, Jesus would say, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And on the screen you say, Jesus says, I give them eternal life. They will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. This reality that you, you can't lose what it is that God's given He's not going to take it away. So if God has redeemed you, he's going to see it through. Moreover, in Ephesians, he said, I've given you the Holy Spirit as a promise. It's a seal for the day of redemption. And so this called and kept is what Jude is referring to right away. And it makes much of the sovereignty of God and the grace of God that he called us and he's going to keep us. Now, I referenced early on that there's a battle that's going on. Right? If you can imagine this kind of scene, it's both literal and figurative, this illustration. But you, can you imagine there's two sides? There's the, the side of darkness and the side of light. And perhaps some of you are like, I am totally envisioning Chronicles of Narnia right now, right? Okay, go there, that's fine. But there's this, 
there's darkness and there's side of light. You can figure out which one's Satan on the dark side, God representing light. And what scripture is telling us is that by nature, we're apart from God. We're sinful, that we are trapped, kind of enslaved to sin, and we are far off. In fact, Scripture says no one does good, not even one. No one seeks after God, not one. So that's the state of where we're at. We're on this other team by nature. And here we are kind of trapped in that. And what we just learned is it's God who crosses the lines through Jesus and pays a life for a life to free us from that spot and call us onto the the Jesus team, that of the one of light. And so that's what God has done. He's the one that's come and he's called us and he's gonna keep us over here. And so God has done this work that we were once dead to sin. And that's where Luke was reading out of Ephesians 2 and we have it on the screen. The God who is rich in mercy because of his great love for which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And so it is by the grace of God that he has called us and that he's gonna keep us. And Jude, right away, he's, he's addressing that to this, the recipients, and he has the spirit of like, man, I would love to tell you more about where you were really at and how Jesus is the one that redeemed you, and I would just, let's talk about that. But our scripture continues in verse three, beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, and here's a different thought, and the NLT, if you have that, adds a but, but I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for the condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of God into sensuality and deny our master and Lord, Jesus Christ. In other words, what he's saying there in verse three is, I wanted to talk more about what it's like to be on the Jesus team and and how he did that work. I wanna tell you about how God called you and how he's gonna keep you and nothing can snatch you from his hand. But some of the people that Jude's addressing heard that and they're like, so wait a second. So God has saved me and nothing can separate me from the love of God? Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Height nor depth nor angels nor demons, nothing can separate me from God? All right. Sounds like a license to sin. You're like, really? Like, that's what you got is from that, that God has redeemed you, and now you're like, well, then, let's go wild. That's what's happening when he says they, they perverted the grace of God into sensuality. That happens. The illustration is not perfect, but work with me. Have you ever interacted with uh, someone who was spoiled, perhaps growing up? Perhaps maybe you yourself were spoiled. You're like, no, I wasn't spoiled. I just got everything I wanted. Right. So if that's you, like if you interacted with somebody who's been spoiled, what does that mean? It means that perhaps a parent or somebody gave that person just blessing and loved them and and stuff and, and, and really poured it out to them. Just mercy and grace, love, material And when we say that the person received it and was spoiled, it means that likely they had a sense of entitlement. They didn't have an understanding of where it comes from. And and all that blessing just kind of has come with them, and they just made it selfish and about them. Right? And so we say that, that all that 
being poured out onto them, spoiled them, rotten. Now, is it a problem of the blessing and the mercy that's being poured out? Or is it a problem with the, the individual that perverts that? See, what, it's a little bit of a jump, but what we have here is God has poured out his mercy, his blessing, and his grace. Is that a bad thing? Absolutely not. That's not the problem here. The problem is the perversion of that and the individual making it about them and a license to do whatever they want for their own benefit. And so that's gonna happen. It's gonna happen. In fact, we're gonna see later in Romans, you know, where in, in chapter six where people hear that God's mercy and grace and even when we sin, it requires God to forgive us and like, wait, the more I sin, the more forgiveness is given, which means, man, God is glorified when he forgives. So, so we, should we go on sinning? Paul's like, really, are we having this discussion? Like, no, you shouldn't. That shouldn't be the case. But it's gonna happen when you preach the gospel well and you say, God's the one that's called you. God's the one that's gonna keep you. He's done it. He's marvelous. See that mercy and that grace. And when you preach it as freely as it truly is, it's possible that this perversion takes place. As it did that Jude is addressing, it's possible that this perversion takes place. And what what happened here is that people crept in, and perhaps these are church leaders, members of part of the church, and, and I think in just a subtle way, because he says they were unnoticed, right? They weren't like carrying, you know, pitchforks and wearing like red capes and like, here, we got a new teaching for you. But it's just this subtle, they crept in unnoticed, and here's the plan that they concocted was to, to pervert the grace of God into sensuality. If you're taking notes, the defining sensuality is just the enjoyment, expression, or pursuit of sexual pleasure. And what's implied here is that enjoyment, expression, or pursuit of sexual pleasure is outside the context of marriage. In context of marriage, it's a beautiful thing, but, but outside the context of marriage, that is what Jude is correcting here. That this is happening outside the context of marriage. And what does he say about this? He's saying that this kind of sensuality perverts the grace of God, and moreover, that it denies our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Well, how does sensuality deny Jesus Christ? Because here's the reality. Again, by definition, what is it? The enjoyment, expression, and the pursuit of sexual pleasure outside of marriage. And why that is at odds with God is because we're called to pursue him, find our enjoyment in him, not in this temporal thing in sexual immorality, outside, you know, sexuality. Does that make sense? It's, it's a cheap inversion of what we're ultimately to be finding in God alone. And here's what I mean by that. Practically, if, if someone were to wear like really revealing clothing, stuff that's really tight, and it's not because it's really comfortable, but there's, there's a goal with that. The goal would be to, to get people to notice, to get comments made, perhaps even to, to garner the attention of somebody of the opposite sex. That's the goal with that. 
And that's a cheapened version of what God would want because God would want you to, to get your affirmation, not from somebody in a bar or not from somebody you know, just passing by, but to ultimately find your affirmation in him. God would ultimately want you to find your pleasure in him, your value, your worth in him. And so it's a, it's a cheapened version, and you have to hear me. I'm not just talking about but gals, but, but guys, that because of this insecurity, this desire for affirmation, will do things outwardly. Maybe it's not with guys, not just what they wear, but you ever met that guy that's over competitive or but the vehicle he drives seems to be compensating for something. He just wants to have this attention, this affirmation. And rather than saying, hey, man, you are a really great lover of people. You're a servant. You're a great guy. The cheap inversion is like, hey, nice truck. Really? <laughs> like, but it's something. And one's a whole lot easier to get. You just throw money at it. One's a whole lot easier to get. You just wear revealing clothing to be beautiful as God would have it and God would intend the right way takes a conforming. And so the, what this is, this, this sexuality, the sensuality becomes a, a cheapened version of what God would have. And honestly, one of the, the biggest things in helping me try and walk in purity it, it was to understand what's going on there. So I used to get angry at the kid in gym class that took dodgeball way too serious. I used to get, you know, even just drawn to, to gals that were wearing revealing clothing. And a shepherd in my life said, do you understand what's happening? Is there's a desire for that affirmation. I remember even having a conversation with one of you in here telling me that I really need to love my daughters because if they receive that affirmation that comes from their father, they're not going to go looking for it in these cheapened places. You understand what God's intention is. So when you see that on display, men, women, that shouldn't be something that entices us, that we applaud, that we condone, but rather we should see that and our hearts should break. Knowing that what is ultimately being pursued there is just a cheap inversion of what God would ultimately have. That's why it's at odds. That's why sensuality is, is a perversion of what God would have. And it's crept in unnoticed. These teachers are taking this, this grace and they're perverting it and saying, man, God's gracious, he's, he's merciful, he's forgiving, you can't lose your salvation. So therefore... Although you're part of the Jesus team, it's okay to act like the team that we, where you came from. Because it's not just in, in those ways, but, but amping it up. Campus Crusade, which is a Christian ministry, solicited the, the Barna Group to do some research. And amongst Christian men, Christian men from ages 13 to 24, and that age of our young adults here, the research found that 41% of those Christian men were looking at pornographic images on the internet on a monthly basis or greater. Went on to find even in that same range, it's not just men, but women. And then this is alarming, and I'm not trying to take the hair out of your sail, but 40% but of that same demographic had sent nude images of themselves via text message. Doesn't that hurt? 
Because you see, something is broken. And it's a denial of, of what God would have. God would want there to be an affirmation that he, God's not opposed. It's like fire. Fire in the fireplace in your home, it's a beautiful thing. Outside the fireplace, fire in your home, bad thing. <laughs> Sex within the context of marriage, great, beautiful thing. Outside the context of marriage, you know this is true. You know that outside the context of marriage leads to brokenness, hurt, pain, destruction. That's the reality then when we take what God has intended and we pervert it. God is intended for one man, one woman for a lifetime. And when you see that and when you're part of that wedding and you see those two come together, it's a beautiful thing. And so sensuality, this enjoyment, expression, or pursuit of sexual pleasure outside of marriage is in direct opposition to the gospel of Jesus and what he would have. And it is one of the primary tactics, perhaps the first that Satan uses then and even still today. And what he goes on to say is that's just not fitting for those who have been called from that and are now a part of the family of God. That's the former way of life. In fact, I feel like 1 Thessalonians really captures this well. And it'll be on the screen. But in 1 Thessalonians, he says, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion and lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this manner. And what, what he's saying in that is that when you're sleeping with somebody that's not your spouse, it's somebody else's spouse. You're wronging them. That's not loving. You wouldn't want somebody to do that to you. And so you're wronging your brother or your sister in that manner because the Lord is avenger of all these things. And as he told you beforehand and Solomon warned you, for God has not called us for impurity, again, that language called, for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, Whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. I love that because your problem if you're like, man, I just don't know about that. I kind of want to, you know, uh, cohabitate with my partner and, and try out this. I'm saying, your problem's not with me. I love it's with God. If you disagree with this teaching, you're disagreeing with God, who also gives his Holy Spirit it's not just a rejection of the teaching. It's a rejecting, rejection of God altogether when you embrace sensuality outside the context of marriage. That grace, that the fact that God has called us and has kept us, that is not meant to spoil us, but rather it should be motivation to live a holy life, to live in purity. Again, going back to that illustration, this is what we've been brought out of, this, this brokenness, this hurt, and this pain. What he's saying is, why would you want to return to those things? And so Jude says, man, I would love to have talked more about what it was like for you to be called out and all the benefits of that, but now I'm just telling you, contend for the faith. Like, we're in a battle, a struggle, and I'm telling you, contend for the faith. That, even that language there of contend in the Greek just means just this struggle. We're in this wrestle. And again, referencing that 
it doesn't mean, oh, just roll over and just keep on sinning now that we've been freed. Now he's saying, do battle, contend. In Romans 6, says, for now that you've been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and eternal life. You have been free. That is true. You've been free. But he says you're free to be enslaved to God. Jude says, I've been freed to be a servant of Jesus Christ. It's like when you hand a 16-year-old the car keys. You're like, you're free to go wherever. That's both true and not true. Like, I suppose in one sense you are free to drive in the ditch or on the sidewalks until you hit a person or a pole or something, and then your freedom's kind of lost, right? There is freedom, but the most freedom for you young drivers is actually if you stay on the road and obey the laws. Then you can pretty much go wherever you want. But again, there's not this freedom that that God has given us. is isn't a freedom and a license to, to sin and do whatever, but it's a freedom to be a slave to Jesus Christ, a servant of his. And the lie that I think that Satan would want to use that, he's, that is here is that, man, there is this, this battle that's taking place. And, and here's the lie. Is that these sexual desires, this, this sensuality, is gonna, it's going to happen. It's inevitable. And when it happens, when you have that desire, you're going to give in to it. And I hear that in language as a college pastor for the longest time. You hear guys refer to looking at stuff on the internet and say, man, I just, I slipped. I stumbled. I just, you know. And the lie in there again is that the sexual desire, it's inevitable and you're going to have to give into it. And what that does when you begin to speak like that, it victimizes yourself. Somehow you're the victim. Like, I get it if you slip on ice. But you think of the act of looking at something on the internet, it is far from slipping, right? It is a very conscious, plotted process. And so when you talk like that and victimize yourself, you begin to normalize sin. And I'm saying, we don't do that with a lot of other areas. Jude's going after sensuality because I think that's often the first one to go. But we don't talk about that in regards to anger, right? We do have this, this desire that, Likely, inevitably, it comes up where we get angry. But we don't talk about anger. It's like, you know, it came up and I just murdered somebody. You know how that happens, right? We don't, clearly we say, okay, I'm angry, but I don't get to act on that anger and just like kill people. Come on. So we have these limits that we've, we've, you know, in regards to our, I mean, if we talked about, murder or if you talked about drunkenness or there's things that I think we're like no that is totally not fitting but yet somehow amongst our young guys 40% are consistently looking at nude images on the internet and I'm saying that's where the the battle is won and lost right now so that we just it's inevitable it's just part of our culture well our culture does not get to define where God sets the bar Our culture doesn't get to define that when it comes to murder. It doesn't get to define it with drunkenness. And it does not get to define it when it comes to sensuality. And what I'm begging you is to stop letting them set the bar. And that's 
for me, that's when I began to experience freedom is when a pastor saying, um, Stan, we don't do that here. Now you get to, in Romans 12, 1 and 2, in, in view of God's mercy, this is what the scripture says, that you would urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, tack like spoiled idiot children? No. In view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, by the testing. Uh, you may be, discern the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. In Ephesians 5, Paul says, let there not even be a hint of sexual immorality. This is improper for God's holy people. It was the lie that crept in that perverted the grace of God. Anything good. Who in doing that and having those broken relationships or in experiencing that brokenness and like, you know what? It, that just feels so great. Maybe in a moment, but afterwards, really? And so when I get to talk to young guys and say, you can be free from this, I sincerely would want to have your best interest in mind, knowing that being able to walk in freedom, man, that there's a joy that comes from that. And this is where Jude is saying, I, I want to be able to talk about that. I want to be able to talk about what it's like to be on the Jesus team. But there's an abuse of this grace. There's a not taking serious sin. There's a normalization of it in your language. There's an adaptation to the culture that just become prevalent. What I'm saying is, let's let God's word define sensuality and what's proper for God's holy people. As you look at these texts today, how can you deduct anything other that God would have for his sons and his daughters for us to find our pleasure in him, to find our affirmation in him, our encouragement in him, and to not settle for the cheapened version. And Anthem, this is what I would want for you. It's certainly what I would want for my daughters, that they would understand the affirmation that comes from God. And here's the reality. It's, it's because of what Jesus has done that we have been freed from that, and you can know and trust that God is good and he has your best interest in mind. The same God that said, don't let there even be a hint of sexual immorality. Same God that said, refrain, that if your problem, you have a problem with this, it's, it's not with the teaching, it's with me. The God that, who said that is also the God who gave his son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for you. So I know that at times, especially in those moments, those lies, you're like, I don't know if I believe that. It seems like what the best thing right now would be to, to wear this or to look at this or to do that. And Anthem Church is what I'd beg you, in view of Jesus Christ, what he has done on the cross, you can trust God in his goodness and know that he has your, his, your best interest in mind because he gave his son Jesus Christ for you to cover that sins. Amen? Does that make sense? That God loved you so much. And so with that, I'm gonna pray, I'm gonna invite uh, the band up, and we're gonna celebrate communion here shortly, but...
But God, do just thank you for your word.